Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. It is Monday, February 26, 2024. Welcome to Raging Chickens, Out to Coop Live. This is Kevin Mahoney, editor and founder of Raging Chicken. On Out to Coop Live, we talk to progressives, activists, and troublemakers of all sorts, right from our own backyards and across the country. You can join us at the end of the week for our Friday Politics Roundup, where we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. And you can get all our shows by subscribing to our podcast on Podbean, iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the details. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our awesome podcast listeners, make sure to leave us a five-star review on whatever platform you listen on. Leave a comment, too, so folks know why you like the show. Little things like this help other people find the show. That's how we do this, folks. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to the Rick Smith Show's live stream at 9 p.m. Eastern, YouTube, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams, and subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Check out the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast rock the house. And they know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast and Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcast. And of course, you got to listen to The Signal. That's the flagship podcast from the Bucks County Beacon. The Signal is hosted by the Beacon's editor in chief, Cyril Michaleko, and produced by yours truly. Twice a month, The Signal will shine a light on right-wing extremist currents streaming through Bucks County and beyond. Cyril invites guests who can provide insight, analysis, and organizing solutions so we can steer the community toward calmer, saner, progressive roots. Check them out at buckscountybeacon.podbean.com or wherever you get your podcast. Also, The Civic Circle is a podcast by the Bucks County Beacon tackling politics and policy from a Gen Z lens. Sarah Zhang, Mallory Marson, and Alexandra Coffey are students from Bucks County, Pennsylvania. And once a month, they chat about activism, advocacy, and all the political happenings affecting their generation today. Check them out at civiccircle.podbean.com. That's civiccircle.podbean.com. And attention all you gamers out there, the Game Inn, that's with two N's, the Game Inn is a Quakertown-based black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops, and kids get discounts when they get A's in their report cards. You can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page and follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In. That's with two N's. At the Game In. Yes. Got a question about a game? Looking for something hard to get? Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And if you find yourself in the Kutztown area, you've got to check out the Heart and Hearth Deli and Smokehouse. Located at 466 West Main Street, Kitty Corner from the Kutztown University campus. The Heart and Hearth is an American bistro featuring barbecue and French-inspired fare, all with locally sourced and organic ingredients. Check them out, www.heartandhearthcuisine.com, or on Instagram at Heart and Hearth Deli. 
Shout out goes to Jonathan Mann, who wrote our intro song, There Are No People in the Future. Check out all his great stuff and follow him on his YouTube page or on Twitter at at Song of Day Man. That's at Song of Day Man on Twitter. Well, we got a great stuff coming for you tonight, everybody. Uh, I've been plugging this for, for a bit. I've been waiting for this night for a while. I'm very excited about it. And tonight's show, I welcome Steve Oros and Lori McKinley to the show. Steve Oros, as many people listeners to the show will know, is Associate Professor of Psychology at Kutztown University. Um, and you remember, in the fall of 2021, Steve Oros was denied ADA accommodations by Kutztown University's administration. Oros had a heart transplant in February 2021, following months of physical therapy and treatment as doctors cleared him to return to work in fall 2021, with one condition, provided that he taught his classes online, given that COVID was still rampant and would pose a significant risk to his life. Rather than providing Oros with accommodations, the administration said the only way they would allow him to return to work would be if he taught in person. Rather than risk his life or being forced to go on unpaid leave or losing his job, Oros decided to fight. And that's what we love around these parts. <laughs> thanks, for his, thanks to his determination and the amazing advocacy of his attorney, Lori McKinley, Oros won his case. Steve's experience has led him to wider spheres of advocacy as well. He's a team member with the World Health Network focusing on legal action for policy change. He has also become involved in the Organ Donor Awareness Corporation, which is a student-led organ donation advocacy group with chapters in New York City, Nashville, Tennessee, and involving students from around the country. And he's going to be participating in a series of webinars with this group focused on promoting organ donation among young adults. And Lori McKinley is one of the few lawyers in the Philadelphia area with undisputed expertise in both employment law and special education advocacy and litigation. She is a passionate, bold, and creative advocate with a long track record of protecting the civil rights of employees and students under the nation's civil rights law at every level of the state and federal courts. Lori is widely recognized for her contributions to the employment provisions of the Americans with Disabilities Act and Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act, as well as her advocacy on behalf of children with special needs. Prior to entering private practice in 1997, she served as a project head for the Employment Law Project at Community Legal Services Incorporated in Philadelphia. 1997, she argued before the U.S. Supreme Court, in a, uh, Supreme Court in a case involving constitutional due process issues for people receiving medical benefits pursuant to Pennsylvania Workers' Compensation Act. And her work on that case is highlighted in an exhibition in the Supreme Court section of the United States Constitution Center in Philadelphia. For over a decade, she has been selected by her peers as one of the best lawyers in America. And since 20, 2008, she has also been listed as a super lawyer by Thomson Reuters based on peer recognition and professional achievement. Welcome to the show, Steve and Lori. Thank you, Kim. You yes, betcha. You. Oh, you betcha. So yes, you know, I know, I know it's a long intro, everybody, a long bio stuff, but I want to make sure we got a little nice and situated for tonight's discussion. Um, because um, this is a perfect example of um, what it looks like to fight and win um, in the face of an organization that is kind of openly attempting to discriminate against people um, and people who are in situations that are, you know, potentially dire where they're risking their kind of life and limb, literally. So um, I appreciate you both being here tonight. And um, I, I know that I've been getting email ahead of ahead of tonight's show. Uh, thanking me already. It's like, great to have you back on. Wondering where the case was now um, and wanted to hear um, you back on the show. So thanks again for being here. Oh man, that's nice to hear. Glad to, glad to be here. 
Yeah, he hasn't. This case has not gone away in people's minds. That's for sure. So, uh, what what I thought, I mean, again, this might be. I mean, I put links in the show notes, uh, uh, kind of in our show here. It'll be both in our podcast and our YouTube page. Where if you want to go back and check out um, the last time Steve was on the show, was like a, right in the face of him being denied um, uh, ADA accommodations back in 2021. Um, and there, that is linked directly in the show notes. You want to go back and hear that whole conversation because it is a, it is it is a. a um, uh, infuriating litany of uh, of of events that took place um, to uh, work every way possible to try to prevent Steve from coming back to work. It was the most incredible thing I've ever seen. Um, but not unfamiliar in my experience of working at at Kutztown for sure. But for those folks who might be new to this or are coming is to look at the, the most recent legal case and stuff, what I thought might be kind of useful is just to give us a kind of a, a kind of a brief lead up of kind of like what happened here, what happened in 2021 that got us to the point where okay, it's like uh, you know it's either I fight this in court or I risk my job or my life. Right, Steve and you know Lori too. If you feel like to kind of stepping in at any point in here, but Steve, maybe you could kind of take us through some of those events about what led us to um, this court case. For sure, uh, and let me back up just a, a hair further back, please. So I had been living for a number of years with a severely compromised heart um, that was damaged back in 2014, and uh, while I had to take some time off from work, I was back at work, and in uh, 2020. Um, I really started struggling and um, ultimately ended up that I needed a heart transplant. So I took a medical leave in the spring of 2021. I got the heart transplant. Fortunately, it uh, went pretty well for me. I was released and entered into a rehab program. Um, also, fortunately, by the end of the summer, the doctors were saying I could come back to work um, sooner than we had thought, but they were saying, yep, you can come back. But there were conditions put on them mm -hmm. because of COVID being present and because, you know, and, and this is an important point too, the lack of precautions and uh, mitigation efforts on the part of Kutztown. So I honestly thought this was a simple deal. I contacted HR um, informally just to start the process. What do I have to give you? What do I have to provide so that I can continue teaching remotely? And I got a note back saying, nope, not gonna happen. <laughs> you're, you're not gonna be allowed. And I thought, are you freaking kidding me? Well, well this must be some kind of mistake, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I thought maybe what they meant is I needed to formally request, you know, so ended up, I wrote a formal request for accommodations from the ADA got the exact same wording, exact same rejection. And um, it, it just didn't seem right to me. Uh, it didn't seem to fit my understanding of the ADA, uh, didn't fit our own university policy. And so I started internally speaking up. Um, there were a couple rallies, people came to my support, but I approached a disability rights advocacy group, um, uh, Disability Rights Pennsylvania, who contacted Kutztown on my behalf, sent a letter to them in early October of 2021. And uh, they outlined how Kutztown was violating the law, offered a simple solution to get me back to work and simply get my back pay that they had denied Ill illegally. 
and Kutztown escalated. They threatened to fire me. They threatened to cut off my health benefits and terminate my job. And DRP, again, Disability Rights Pennsylvania, said at that time I should contact an employment lawyer. And that started the search. They gave me some recommendations, but I started reviewing people and fortunately uh, contacted Lori, who was willing to take on the case. And we filed the formal complaint in mid-July. I mean, excuse me, mid-November mm-hmm. of, of 2021. 2021, right? So yeah. of, of 2021, yeah, mid-November. And followed that a week later with a request for a restraining order to keep Kutztown from firing me because they had stated that if I was not back in person by December 29th of 2021, I would lose the job, lose the health benefits. Um, and we'll come to this, I'm sure, but they yeah. stated a policy that they claim justified their decision. And that's when uh, we started the legal battle. So um, let, let, me, let me just paint this picture, too, just to remind everybody, too. In the fall of 2021, um, a couple things happened. Steve has already kind of alluded to it, but um, Kutztown University was one of the first universities in the state system, right, once that there was uh, some loosening of masking uh, requirements to basically drop all masking requirements. Masking was then kind of suggested. And then there was also a big uptick of COVID cases again in fall of 2021, as was expected, right? All the warnings were there. People were coming out here. But um, the president of the university, um, Kenneth Hawkinson, was insistent that everyone went back in person um, with minimal protections. And that reason why that posed such a threat to Steve, of course, is because he had come to us off a heart transplant, right? And his life was at risk. If he had COVID, right, he could die. I mean, it was a pretty straight line from there, right? Yeah. And the, uh, at that time, with that strain of the variant that was available, the estimates were that if I caught COVID, there was a 30% chance of dying. I mean, if you think of it, it's a one in three times you go out your door, yep. you're going to die. And so the doctors were adamant. There was no chance for me to come back in person. 100%. So, Lori, let me shift a little bit with you. So, you know, so Steve gets in touch with you um, um, on these kind of recommendations. So from your perspective, like, how did you decide to take the case? Why were you invested in taking this case? Um, And um, maybe a little bit about kind of like what you kind of brought to the table as an advocate around these issues. Well, I had decided to take Steve's case before I returned his phone call. <laughs> um, actually, the funny story is that my office manager at the time talked to him on the phone, and I was busy doing something, and she came running back. She said, you, you need to call this man. You're going to want to take this case. And I was like, yeah, yeah. He came back a half an hour later. Have you called him yet? And came back again. Have you called him? I said, all right, all right. So I looked at it. I said, oh. I picked up the phone, and I've told, I've joked with Steve a few times that, you know, I would have paid him to let me do his case because this was right up my alley. I've been doing employment-based or disability-based employment claims since I, you know, even before I was out of law school, um, at community legal services, legal services, which is where I got started. And it's been a big focus of my career. So this is really an important issue for me, partly because at that time, of course, we had people like Steve who were in a really vulnerable situation with regard to their um, their ability to return to work and the danger of doing that in a congregate setting for people with these kinds of severe, severe um, risks. Um, but the other thing is, 
the whole idea of remote accommodations as something that can provide access to the workplace for people with disabilities more generally. Not, in fact, in, what I'm trying to say is it's not just about COVID. And that has been a, a really long fight. And prior to COVID, you know, even though the courts have said time and time again that as technology gets better, there are going to be more opportunities for people to receive these kinds of accommodations and, um, and to, you know, to be able to, to participate in the workforce, which is really the whole point of the civil rights laws. Right. Uh, so, you know, once COVID got started, and it was very obvious, especially in the university-type setting, that, you know, the t- technology was not only developing, it was there, you know, and there are so many different ways of, you know, of conducting really high quality, you know, education um, remotely. And so it just seemed like a no brainer for me that I was sort of, this is my case. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, I've never really looked back. And I think that, um, you know, Steve and I have worked really closely together and it's just been a, a long saga, but you know, we're not done yet, but we're well on our way, hopefully. So when you when you read this, so did this stand out to you? It's like, oh, this is clear. I mean, there's this is not even, I mean, there's there's not even a question here about discrimination. And that, and how did that maybe compare to other kind of cases you work? Was this one? Did this one stand out as like this is a, you know, <laughs> this is a shoe win because um, of of how like you know how in your face it is? Or was this kind of um, had lots of some complications of approaching the case? I actually did not see it as very complicated. I thought it was a no-brainer. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I actually thought that this was going to be one of those situations where you basically write a letter or you file your lawsuit because the letter ought to be written. Um, and we were we didn't have a lot of time mm-hmm. because of the situation she was in. But I thought I'd file the, the, the case and somebody would call me up and say, oh, what can we do to make this go away? So I am more shocked than anyone that here we are, <laughs> you know, two and a half years later or, yeah, about two and a half years later. And... Yeah you know, we're still working on this. Um, so the, the aggressiveness of the, you know, the pushback from the university was very surprising to me. And um, I, I really couldn't understand it because I just thought from a public relations standpoint, put aside the law, this sounded like a nightmare to me. Um, but that didn't seem to make any difference. I think, you know, it, it just seemed that there was sort of a, a line in the sand and that's what we were dealing with. And so it's just been very difficult to move that. And was it, so was it your sense? I mean, this is just something that I, I was, I'm very curious about from, from your perspective on this too, as well Is like, for me, it would seem like once the university decides to fight this, that the stakes of the case go up because like in a sense that if the case gets lost, what it would mean for, for those folks with disabilities, right? And what it would mean for the right. ADA would be problematic. Would you say that? Absolutely, right. And as I said, it's not just about COVID. So I, I think that that would have been a really bad result. But it just seemed to me that given where we're at and given the kind of employment setting we're talking about, that this isn't, this just isn't rocket science. You know, there's no dispute about the disability, no dispute that Steve had medical documentation, that he needed this, needed this kind of accommodation. And, you know, Steve, like lots of other people, Kassan, had been teaching online for years. You know, okay, so nobody was teaching 100% online. That doesn't matter for purposes of an accommodation discussion. You know, the question is, 
essential functions of the job. What is the what is the job designed to accomplish? And you know, teaching is what a professor does. I mean, there are other things too, but there's nothing, you know, magical about that that has to be done in the classroom. You can put Ichabod Crane in a classroom. Right. You know, <laughs> he might not be able to deliver the instruction that we're anticipating. So, or that students, you know, have paid for and are entitled to. So the issue is, you know, can Steve or someone else in his position with this type of access accommodation, because that's really what it is. It's not about giving him something to help him do the job. It's just giving him access to the classroom. Um, because his request was to teach synchronously. So basically under his, you know, what he was asking for was he would be the only person not in the room. The students would be in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, the only person accessing the classroom remotely would be him. Everything else is going to be the same. The, you know, the instruction would be the same. The materials would be the same. The outcomes would be the same. It, it was a very simple simple fix. And in fact, the judge has, has said a number of times, well, I've been to other places and I see people, you know, doing this all the time. Like, what's different about your students? So, you know, I mean, I think there's been a lot of head scratching about this, like how it's possible that we're still here two and a half years later. It's amazing. And I just got a message in from our, uh, um, like in our chat, it says from Social Studies Rock says, I'm facing this right now in the Pashi system with an ADA for heart failure being denied. Um, so, I mean, it seems that the university has also decided that, uh, uh, or not the university, but the system had just seems to the lesson. As a matter of fact, this just came up. Uh, we saw a new job description from the uh, Pashi um, that was through Kutztown University that basically hiring a special investigator for any case that might cause litigation for the university or political consequences. We're like, are you serious? This like, is this a response to what's going on right now here with, uh, with Steve or not? Um, so it's pretty crazy. Um, and Dan says, once the main topic is completed, is if, if you could, I wonder if, uh, what experience Ms. McKinley might have with retirement being rescinded out of spite. Uh, well, we can get to that down the road, Dan. Thank you. Um, it looks like Steve, Steve, are you still there? It looks like somehow Steve, uh, Steve lost his connection. Hopefully Steve will be able to kind of drop back in. Um, and then we'll kind of move that. So, well, let's move ahead, Lori, then to um, the once this finally goes to court, not it just finally goes to court this past year, correct? No, um, we started out very aggressively. And the reason was, well, it, it was it was a case that demanded instant action because Steve was about to lose his medical benefits on December 29th. True. So right. I first met him. And sort of late October, I think it was, it was right, I think it was the day before the rally, which was in October. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, putting together a lawsuit is actually not something you can just do in five minutes. It takes time to pull it together. Right. But under the circumstances, I decided to take what is a very unusual step in an employment case, which is a file for a, a temporary restraining order. And the reason that it's unusual is because most of the time, what courts will say is, well, if, um, if the case is something that we can fix later, like after you win mm-hmm. with, by writing a check, well, there's no irreparable harm. So maybe, you know, you can show me right now that you're probably going to win, but without the irreparable harm, you know, I can't give you relief today. Right. Um, so we filed for the TRO and we got it. 
And it was really amazing because I, I heard from a lot of people, like friends of mine who were lawyers, and they said, I can't even believe that you filed for a TRO, much less that you got one. In an employment <laughs> case, it's really very unusual. Mm. So again, I thought, okay, we're, we're doing great. This is going to be over soon. Um, but that, that's not what happened. But the, the upshot from the TRO is that Steve was, uh, or, or the university was ordered to let him come back to work, um, starting with the winter term. So, and so he's back for the spring. So we were able to get him back, even though the case continued. So it's a temporary, well, it turned out, we ended up, yeah. So anyway, um, so pending litigation, um, so it's it's not an order that says you win. It, what it says is you're probably going to win. You have a substantial likelihood mm-hmm. of prevailing on the merits, and it would be irreparable harm for him not to be working while this process goes on. So that's that's what happened. So there's this step one, and so this case then continues and goes on, and then we finally get a ruling on this last summer. Correct? I mean, uh, July twenty fifth, twenty twenty three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, let, let me just kind of like just give people a flavor of some of the opening sentence of the conclusion of this case. Um, this is from directly from it says conclusion in sum, instead of showing compassion to a valued tenured professor who, despite having recently underwent a heart transplant and was trying with, quote, all his might to return to campus, unquote, for the fall 2021 semester, the university showed callous indifference by refusing to consider Professor Oros's individual circumstances as the law required in favor of summarily, summarily sorry, denying his request for remote accommodation based on recently devised, inflexible, and unsubstantiated policy that any request to change the course of modality from in-person to remote would be considered a substantial alteration to the course offerings that would re- represent an undue hardship to the university and its students. I mean... I don't know about what you all, I mean, we can get into more some of the specifics in the case, but reading that at the end, and this is, that's one of the quotes that was making into the papers that made it in the Philadelphia Inquirer, that made it inside higher ed, that made it a whole bunch of other places that were reporting on this. That seemed to be like the judge basically saying, you know, this is unconscionable what you did. I mean, I don't know if that was your sense of it, but reading this, that's what it seems like to me. Yeah, yeah, he was more eloquent than I was. And, you know, I can wax poetic in these kinds of situations that Steve can attest. Yeah. Um, no, because it's, yeah. you know, but yeah, he, he was obviously, that that is unusually strong language from a federal judge, I think. Yeah, yeah. There, were, there were, I mean, that was, when I when I first read it, I thought, it, you know, we're finally over. The, the university has to recognize that the court is really ticked off about this. Um, there was a, you know, another statement that always stuck with me from that same ruling when the uh, judge stated that the university did not make any effort, let alone a good faith effort, to accommodate me. Um, you know, there's just another one is they're saying, you didn't do anything <laughs> to follow the law. And I thought for sure that would get through the heads mm-hmm. of the administrators and, and the case, you know, result in it ending right and that was that was by design right i mean you know because this wasn't done under kutztown's published accommodation policy this was a secret blanket policy that was devised as the court said 
a mantra that was devised to apply to anybody. Didn't matter whether it was Steve or anyone else. And it was just a blanket. No, you can't have that accommodation, period. Well, and it seems like this is one of these cases, too, where, you know, for any individual being faced with the university, well, look, this is the policy, right? And you have that sense that, like, this is not right, but you don't know. But in in the case of law, like, when you're in a court of law, they have to basically prove this stuff. So what you're just saying there about this policy that they just, like, slapdash put together, this was something that came out in the findings in the court, correct? Well, it did. It did. But, you know, when you talk about proof, I mean, that's another interesting thing about the way we litigate this case. You know, usually the plaintiff, well, the plaintiff does have the burden of proof. We're the ones that have the obligation to prove discrimination. Um, And so, again, it's unusual for a plaintiff to go into court after discovery and say, hi, judge, here's our case. We're entitled to judgment now. No trial. These are the facts. They're undisputed. The facts are almost all undisputed. Um, and so, you know, we want you to issue an order right now and give us relief. So that's what we did. That's a very unusual thing for plaintiff's lawyers to do. Um, I mean, I've been doing it for a long time in ADA cases because I think a lot of times those the facts really can be decided that way, but especially so in a case like this, which is about the policy, the application of a blanket policy. We just say no. That's what, you know, you can't do that. People can't hang up signs on the, you know, university door that says people with disabilities can't work here. Yeah, it's like people- seeing like the big, the big like wheelchair sign with a cross through yeah. it, right? You know, as if there's, that's exactly. their policy. Exactly. And it's no different. You know, it's just a virtual ramp, essentially, you know, as opposed to a physical one. But the access issue is exactly the same. And you can't have a blanket policy. I mean, that is just bedrock law under the ADA, Section 504, even before that, um, that it always has to be individualized. So when you read what the judge said on the last page, he talks about that. You know, there was absolutely no individualized assessment of whether this would have been an undue hardship to the university because the way their blanket policy worked, their mantra, as he put it, um, it was no questions asked, no. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, again, I just, I felt really confident about doing it and you know you have to do this whole big thing of undisputed facts and really most of the facts that we needed to prevail on most of the claims that we brought were not disputed there was just no question that's what happened their argument was oh it it changes the nature of our business because we're an in-person institution no it doesn't is that literally all they had is just like well we say that it changes our business pretty much yes yeah wow um yeah but it doesn't. And, and the point is, an accommodation is, you know, for one person. You know, we're looking at one person at a time. We're not talking about, you know, everybody in the university that might want to make a lifestyle choice. Like, oh, that was pretty fun for us. You know, teaching remotely, I think I'll ask to, to be able to do that. You know, I, I mean, that is not what we're talking about. We're talking about accommodations for people with disabilities under federal civil rights laws that say people have to be People have to do things differently in order to give access to a person with disability, which is what our case is about, or some other kind of accommodation and other kinds of cases. But, you know, this is the way we've always done it, or this is the way we want everybody to do it now. We want everybody back to campus. My favorite line from Hawkins' deposition is, no matter what. Um, so it, it was no 
there, there was no individualized assessment. The whole point was that there would be none, you know, and that is not what their actual policy says, but this is how they implemented their blanket policy. And that is what got them in so much trouble, so much so that we were able to get these rulings at a very unusual time. Yeah. Um, you know, so I, I really can't believe that we're still here, honestly. It's amazing. So Steve, what, like from your perspective, heading into this case and, and kind of seeing the depositions, seeing what the university was offering and then from your experience, what was that experience like for you going through this? <laughs> uh, well, there are probably certain things I can't say about my emotional reaction to Fair enough. <laughs> um, Smart man. People can, people can probably infer um, and if you want to browse through records, I'm sure you can find places where I said exactly what I think. Um, but honestly, the, the, the first sets of emotions. Oh, we just lost oh, no. Steve. Oh, first set of the mobile. Hopefully he'll be able to come back in. He's been having everybody. Sorry about that. He's been having uh, so a couple issues with the connection um, on Steve's end. So he's been able to kind of jump back in each time. So we'll come right back to that and kind of in a, in a second. Um, so Lori, let me turn back to you then. So if all they had, what, here's what strikes me is that if all they had going forward is like, well, we decided that our model was X and it's not based on kind of, kind of objective reality. As you said, there's already an infrastructure that was built in response to COVID, but had been part, it's even in the, the case that it's in the mission statement of the university that distance education is an important part of the university's mission. So in their own materials, it was there. So the infrastructure is built, right? We've already had experience that has been, you know, by the time we get to 2021, faculty had a significant experience, right? And really had upped their game in response to, um, in response to what was going on with COVID. Students had gotten used to this. So, I, I mean, I can't even imagine being in a courtroom with people that have no evidence, they have no argument, they're not refuting any of the case, but all they have is, well, this is what we want to do. Yeah, I mean, because the standard that the judge is supposed to apply, you know, the, yeah. the issue, it's not as simple as just saying, I want an accommodation. I mean, you have to show that you're medically, you have to document right. it. You have to show this on an undue hardship to the university. So, um, but undue hardship is their burden. They have to prove that. Um, and that means significant difficulty or expense. And it's admitted that there wasn't a significant difficulty. I mean, they never they never challenged that. Their argument was, oh, it's a fundamental alteration, which is a different standard that applies for public accommodations. So, for instance, it would apply to students, but not employees. Um, but even if it did, the judge, there's no fundamental alteration to your entire business model because you have to give four remote classes to Dr. Moros. I mean, that's just not a thing. Right. Right. It's crazy. Steve, sorry, sorry we lost you there for a minute, Steve, but you were right at the point you were saying like yeah. your initial set of feelings on <laughs> well, this case. Yeah. And you went and set it outside. Yeah. Somewhere. Sorry. I, I, I froze up there. I don't know what happened. Yeah. Um, so yeah, initially, cause I remember this conversation when I was uh, applying to come back in the very beginning and I was getting ready to write to uh, Jennifer Weidman in HR my daughter was in the office and I was talking about, I was gonna to have to request that my classes be remote. And she said, well, will that be a problem? And I said, well, no, hell no. I mean, we just did it mm -hmm. for the pandemic. I've done it even before the pandemic. Of course, this will be fine. And she offered at that time, 
you know, I'm, I'm at the time thinking, oh, this won't be an issue. Uh, she offered to stop going to her undergraduate college because she was concerned that I wouldn't be working and have pay coming in. So, I mean, I'm, I, that shook me a little bit, mm-hmm. obviously. I, you know, I wanted her to finish it. And then when they did, in fact, deny the accommodation with this, you know, the rationale, it's a fundamental alteration of the format of the class, and therefore we can't, we can't do this. I was, I was initially stunned. Um, then, frankly, I started getting angry. Mm-hmm. Uh, I started obviously speaking up on campus, but then what escalated sort of my anger with the university was I started hearing from others who are being denied. Uh, so there were other faculty being denied accommodations. And then I was getting messages from students saying they were denied. Mm-hmm. And I thought, what, what kind of university does this? We're, you know, we're supposed to be a higher institution of learning. Well, and it's new um, mission statement that it's branded all over the place says it's a caring community yeah, too as well. Exactly. So, so I went through this, you know, shock, surprise, anger, uh, and then started becoming a little more systematic and thinking about where do we go. It's uh, pretty crazy. I mean, what, were there were there parts of that of that testimony that you heard or from the kind of university officials that really stood out to you? That either as because kind of, I would imagine a lot of this is kind of vindicate vindicating not just in terms of like you were right about an argument but also in terms mm-hmm. of recognition that like yes this is kind of what i suspected was going on and yes i wasn't a crazy person right <laughs> that this is what was happening uh, you know there there were a lot of things that stood out in some of the testimony i'm sure i'm not allowed to say um you can and, talk about what the testimony was as long as you're accurate yeah well, I'll be careful on that, but um, <laughs> so uh, I'll just say that there are a lot of it that surprised me. Um, it, there was certainly vindication, um, but I have to say that even from the very beginning, even though there's always a doubt on whether you're actually going to prevail in the court of law, I was fairly confident. Um, I, I remember telling people my friends and family that I was 95, 99% sure that I would ultimately prevail. Um, I thought it would be a lot faster um, than it's turned out to be, but, um, but, you know, doubts crept in here or there when it kept going on and on. Um, So uh, I think the probably, uh, I mean, I just want to be careful so I don't misstate. Sure. Things that were in the testimony. I think the surprising part, the biggest surprises for me in the testimony were the shifting explanations for the denial and the discrepancies between what KU administrators were reporting in terms of the amount of training they received regarding uh, the ADA. And uh, the discrepancies surprised me. Because um, I, w- I would have thought these administrators and certainly in HR would have extensive and ongoing ADA training. And there are a couple people who claim that, but right. the data well, was suspect there. Right. Well, let me, let me, th- this, let me read just one section from, um, again, this is from the file from the decision. 
And this is from um, Mr. Jesus Pena. Mr. And, and Pena, well, he was the guy ahead of social equity, right? So the person who is supposed to yeah. be ensuring that people, say, with disabilities, yeah. from protected classes, are protected in the university. So this is what he said um, at one point. He says, concerning the same issue, this is about the denials, Mr. Pena testified that, quote, the position we took was that converting in-person classes to online would be a fundamental alteration of our operations or the business nature or the nature of our business. We are an in-person institution. We are not an online institution. So we believe that fundamentally altering our operations or the nature of our business would constitute an undue hardship. And as such, we, that we would not that would not be a reasonable accommodation under ADA. Mr. Pena further testified that online classes are, quote, more an exception rather than the rule. We will offer online classes, let's say, during the winter or summer months so that students have an opportunity to get additional credits, graduate time, or graduate or graduate earlier. Also, if you're targeting a certain population, let's say you're non-traditional students because they work all day or something, blah, 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 he goes on, right? So it's only in this exception. What it sounds like to me, when I hear that, I hear like, this is like a, the, the university as it's constructed by a PR firm about what it is, and then attempting to say that this is what we actually are, <laughs> as opposed to say, no, that's not how the university was operating. It's not how it has operated, right? And let's put that matter aside, that still doesn't kind of sidestep the law because you believe you're a particular kind of institution. I mean, am I barking up a wrong tree here? No, and, and that was what I, I said earlier that you can't say, well, this is just the way we do it here. We only offer online classes in this circumstance or that circumstance, or, you know, somebody's going to teach part-time here, you know, I mean, you know, on campus, you know, we just, we can give you a remote assign a remote teaching assignment. Um, and so for that assignment, it's not, it's not, you know, we can do that without a problem. Right. It's not, you know, yeah. an essential function for you to teach that class remotely. But we're going to say that as a matter of a policy, automatic, you can't teach these other. I mean, it's just a ridiculous argument. But the way you usually do things isn't the issue. The issue is, can you make an accommodation, do something different, modify the way you ordinarily do things to an allow this person to perform the essential functions of the job, not right. marginal functions, essential functions. So the fact that you would rather do it some other way isn't a defense. And it was very frustrating for me to have to just, you know, go on and on having these arguments about things that really we shouldn't be arguing about because it's so fundamental black letter law. Well, well yeah, and let me add to that. It's It was astonishing to hear them say that when there were online courses continually being offered. Um, and yes, they tried to excuse away the circumstances under which online courses were offered, but, you know, varying percentages were thrown out. I know at one time it was up to like 20% of the courses were still being offered online, but no, you can't get it if it's medically necessary. But, but for these other cases, yeah, sure, we can do it. And that's not changing our model. It was... It, it, it's bizarro land, really. Right. <laughs> it's like, it made no sense to me. Well, and what was astonishing to me is that in the lead up to, this is before COVID, is that the strong push at the university was for more online yeah. classes. And so I, yeah. look, I'll, I'll tell you, I've, I was a person 
who fought online classes. I did not want to teach online classes. I wanted to be an in-person instructor, right? And that's what I wanted. And we were continually pressured to teach more classes online because of those very same business uh, interests of the university, right? And then COVID came along, okay, well, I guess I'm gonna have to learn how to do this right <laughs> and do this well. It took some time and now, okay, I still offer one class online, right? And because it meets needs of students, right? And I've learned to do it in a way I think is fairly pedagogically sound. But so it was the university switching its mind even about what it was prioritizing, right? It was even lying to itself about some of the history of there. Um, but it's just, it, I, it's just, it's, it's unbelievable to me. Right. Well, well and, and to me, it doesn't even matter. Let's say they ordinarily never offered classes online. I think that given where right. we are technologically speaking, that wouldn't be the end of the case. It may not have ended as, you know, as soon as the, I mean, the case isn't over yet, but the, you know, the legal claims have been decided for, for now anyway, unless there's some appeal down the line. But, um, you know, I, I think that you would still have the issue of whether the court can make you, compel you mm -hmm. to provide an online accommodation for someone who is otherwise qualified to perform the essential functions of the job, which in this case would be teaching and doing service and stuff like that. So, you know, obviously it was a lot easier it's a way easier case for us because of the plethora of online offerings, even before COVID mm -hmm. um, and all of the extra equipment, everything that, that they, that they obtained like during the early part of the pandemic, you know, and then they tried to sort of, you know, crunch back the number of offerings to sort of, I think, improve their, like Steve said, a new shifting explanation. Yeah. Oh, now we're, we're offering fewer and fewer of these classes and we're like hiding some of that equipment or getting rid of it or whatever. Well, okay. That doesn't really matter. You can put it in the closet, but the court can make you take it back out again. Um, but now because of student demand, they're having to increase the number because students actually want these courses. They might not, a lot of students, yeah, they want to have a college experience. They don't necessarily want all their classes online. Some do um, because you have a lot of non-traditional students at Kutztown and lots right. of other places too. But you know, they are demanding flexibility yeah, and it's, to it's, be able to, you know, and, and Pashi did a study in the summer of, was it 20 or 21, Steve? You know, that basically said that. That's what yeah. students want. You know, they don't necessarily need or uh, want it would have been all of their classes. As they were merging the schools out west. Yeah. So, you know, they had their own studies that yeah. showed what parents and students wanted and were expecting and were perfectly fine with crazy all right so i promised i was not going to keep you guys all night here and i really i believe me i want to i, I want to i would love to dig into every aspect of this of thing no okay good it's, i mean as long i just i'm going to tell you just let me know like raise your hands but i know everybody else can't see you, you can tell me like okay mahoney cut it <laughs> so let me so i got all my <laughs> great all right so Back in, so in, so then 2021, I, mean, I don't want to move off. I don't want, I'm sorry, not 2021, 2023. And that case that was decided there, I don't want to move away from that too quickly. If there's other things you think we should talk about, but um, you won that case. I mean, like we read that kind of conclusion there from, from the judge. Um, this was like, you know, kind of open and shut case. You hit it out of the park and the university had nothing to stand on, did not contest any of the facts of the case and just said that we'll, we just don't want to accommodate people with disabilities. We just don't want to make accommodations because, and that was it. That was the argument because that like was a, the argument. Yeah, exactly the argument. it was like a third graders argument about, um, how you kind of deal with people with disabilities or people that are being kind of 
his, like systemically now discriminated against at the university. And like Steve said, right, there were many other faculty members that were also got the same stuff. Unfortunately, you know, you know, I, I, I wish we had all these cases go forward, to be honest with you. Um, and now we've got, you know, someone in our chat saying another at someone, another Pashi institution um, for a similar situation is being told yeah. exactly the same things that Steve was told as a way of denying a changing a modality. I mean, it's like it's it's unbelievable to see this kind of intransigence. Yeah, well, it, it, I mean, I will state that I've heard from a lot of other faculty from multiple Pashi schools who are hearing the same thing. Um, not everybody has yet gone forward or may not yet, may, may not ever go forward with the lawsuit. But this kind of reasoning that the court shut down is still being used yes. in schools. Yeah, and not just at, in Pashi schools. It's being no. sort of adopted and morphed to, to be used in other kinds of institutions also, which I think yeah. is really astonishing because I don't think there's anything particularly surprising or out of this world with regard to what the judge found in this case. I mean, because again, most of our facts were undisputed. Right. <laughs> so when you lead, it's sort of like breadcrumbs. Like you follow this breadcrumbs, the guy's got a disability, medical documentation, needs the accommodation, and oh, let's look at this job. Yeah, he can do this, you know, remotely. Perfectly fine. But people have been doing it for years. Um, you know, what's, I, I mean, sometimes, I mean, I, I know I've said this to Steve and well, he said it to me. So why are we here? Yeah. I will add to that. If I may add to that, though, one of the things the university then did along the way was to try to have me classified as unqualified. And that would have made it impossible for me to sue. And the reason the way they tried to do that was to implement what they had called the full time, full duty rule. I had to come back to work full time, full duty. That's not written anywhere. There is no written policy anywhere about this. And when I pressed them over and over, they finally came back and argued that in-person teaching was an essential function of teaching of the job. And since I couldn't be in person, I wasn't qualified for the job. Um, But that was another point that the judge caught on. You know, so there were there was that initial policy issue of, well, we're everybody has to come back. But then they were I mean, they made up a policy. It didn't right. exist. They, anymore. They did make it up. And even Dr. Hawkinson, when I asked him about it during his deposition, well, did you know about this policy? You know, do you have an idea where it came from? President of the university doesn't know. And neither does the HR director. You know, so, mm-hmm. you know, and then they say, oh, it came from Pashi. So it's not our fault. Well, okay, I don't really care because you're the university, you're the defendant in the case, you're responsible for providing accommodations to Dr. Oros. Um, And I don't know, it's been 25 years since it's been flatly illegal to have a full-time, full-time policy without any exceptions. It's just, again, it's astonishing that the memo hasn't reached this place, you know, that full-time, full-duty Policies, blanket policies to say no accommodations for this kind of person with a disability. 
is just you can't defend it legally. You just well, can't. And, and I, the, the fact that they could make the arguments like it's a, they didn't know where the policy came from, and they could say that with a straight face that it might come from Pashi, while other Pashi universities were making exactly the opposite choices. Westchester, for example, was like, nope, we are not going back because we look at science and science says it's dangerous out there. We looked at, you know, uh, other Pashi institutions that I, I assume got the same memo, right? Uh, I mean, it, it's astonishing that they could say that, that they just, well, we don't know where it came from as if it dropped out of the sky. Well, it, you know, uh, it doesn't matter where it came from. You're the ones that are implementing right, right. Planning it. That's yeah. the point. And, you know, one of well, your defendants I, I, is the, you know, the chief equity officer, essentially, for the university. He has an obligation to understand that you can't have a blanket policy. And they kept saying, oh, it's not really blank policy, but... Uh, we we look at individualized circumstances, but but no. all of these requests are going to be denied, and all that. So, well, that's what a blanket policy is. Right, you know? Exactly. <laughs> You're just giving me the definition of what the word means. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. So I mean, you know, used for everybody. No, in, I mean, there was no interactive discussion. There was no there consideration. No, there wasn't. Um, and no. you know, for your audience to know, because I do think it's important to realize this. There is still another lawsuit pending against Kutztown University on this same, very same issue. Um, that's not your case. That's an additional case. No, a, a completely yep. different case. Yeah. But still against Kutztown University for their use of these exact same arguments. Um, and as I've mentioned, I've been talking to people in the Pashi system from other schools and frankly, I've been cons informally helping faculties across the country who have heard about this story and who have heard very similar denials of accommodations. It, it does not seem to be all schools, but there are for, for varying reasons that I'm not fully clear on. Mm -hmm. Some schools have decided that this is the hill they're willing to die on. Well, you know, that was originally, you know, when, when Hawkinson gave out, you know, what, uh, right before 2021, he put out this really angry video. Um, it was like, supposed to be like a welcome back video, but instead he was sitting there and he looked angry through the entire thing. And he basically said, you got to have grit and fortitude, just like the working class students that furtively came back there. And, I, you know, and I did like, again, I was so angry. Sometimes the best way that I deal with when I'm so angry at something like that, that I'll just kind of like use humor. And so I posted this video of him kind of in the background and I used the, uh, you know, the king from Shrek's voice when it comes on, some of you may die, but it's a sacrifice I'm willing to make right i mean because yeah. i mean that's essentially what he was saying right i mean it's like oh, you gotta be kidding yeah. me but yeah. but but i but i digress um so <laughs> so this more cases are pending we see that like that, that uh -huh. kutztown was you know was an outlier in some ways right although it goes on at other posse institutions too as well so it's clearly not ended the lesson has not been learned so but for your case here um you win this case in the summer last summer um, so, but that's not the end of it. Like, right. I mean, why is this case still going on if you won that case? Okay. So we won on summary judgment, which is, mm -hmm. um, a process that happens after you finish discovery. As I said, usually a defendant, the defendants file for summary judgment and they did here, but we were the ones that were driving summary judgment. And like I said, it's very unusual for plaintiffs to file their own motion. Mm -hmm. Um, so it's an interim order, you know, sort of 
you know, before trial and, and, you know, so there wouldn't be a trial on those issues because we already won them. So that was the whole point of, of doing it. So, so let me just get this straight. So, so the university basically says, okay, we give up and well, ask they, for a summary judgment. Well, they asked no. for summary judgment too. Like, Oh, dear judge, you should rule in our favor. Well, gotcha. judge okay. could rule in their favor because we have all the undisputed facts on our side. Right. So, they they lost. They they won a couple of the smaller claims, and there was a whole issue about access to damages remedies because of certain cases that have been decided in the last after we started the lawsuit. But but anyway, that's um, neither here nor there. But um, so one of the so so we brought accommodation claims, which don't require any finding of intent. You know, you know, here, here he is. This is, you know, reasonable accommodation. He can do the job with it. You know, it's basically a strict liability claim. We won on that. We won on the intentional discrimination claim. We won on the blanket policy claim. We won on the interference claim. Um, you know, which is basically, you know, the university was employing policies that interfered with the implementation of the law. The judge said, "Yeah, that's exactly right." Mm-hmm. Um, and so. So the bizarre thing was he decided, you know, that the intentional it's intentional discrimination is a blanket policy that, you know, applies to these particular people. Mm-hmm. Um, so the other claim we brought was called a disparate impact claim, which is um, it's a different kind of claim. And it's important for lots of reasons having to do with access generally, you know. And um, so basically what it says is you're using a policy that not only intentionally discriminates, and we think we can win that, but, you know, when you bring a lawsuit, you don't necessarily know, so you bring the other kind of claim, the disparate impact claim, which is, you know, this policy has the effect of discriminating against this particular group of people. Mm -hmm. So he already found out that they had a policy like that that intentionally discriminated against them. Then he said, well, um, yeah, I did find that, but you have to have statistical evidence. You can't have a disparate impact claim with one person. Well, the whole point of the disparate impact is that he gets treated like all these other people in this group. Right. But in a, in a disability context, as opposed to, let's say, race discrimination or gender discrimination, we don't have to, to have statistical evidence because the statute specifically talks about an individual. Because the whole point was that people with disabilities are being treated differently on an individual, you know, this person, that person. You know, some, some places might only have one person with a disability. Mm-hmm. So if you have a policy that automatically excludes them, the law was intended to prevent that. So we filed what's called a motion for reconsideration on that issue, and the judge reversed himself, which he really had to because, you know, the statute itself showed that, that it was wrong. And, and so he was – so he did that. So He reversed he got, himself and found in your favor then at that point. Yeah, and he found so in our you favor. don't have yeah. to have statistical evidence for a disparate impact claim in a disability context, which is the right Interesting. Ruling. So, and really, it, so it didn't change, like, the remedial um, effect of the case, but we just felt that it was really important to get the law right because, you know, this case is going to be applied in other places. And, you know, there might not be such good evidence in some of those places on intent, which we had. So we had both. You know, so um, so anyway, so that took some extra time. Um, so that's that's kind of where we're at. So basically, in all of the discrimination claims, we've prevailed. So so this um, was now. So my question is that so now there was just another ruling in January, correct? Right, was this was this the one you're just talking about there? Yes. 
Gotcha. So that's when he he, he reversed his he reversed that kind Remember? of that's what came down in January. That's correct on that one uh, disparate impact charge. Okay, great. So now we're done, right? You won the case. It's all it's all over. <laughs> you know, the whole idea of summary judgment is you only are entitled to it if there are no questions of fact. Um, so on, there is one retaliation claim left against the university, and basically the judge of land, that's a question of fact. So that is scheduled for trial in May. So um, I don't know. There are a lot of things that may have between now and then, but but that's that's what's on yeah. the schedule. So we've finished everything except that, and then you know. So, we'll so and I think Lori alluded to this earlier. So the trial is on this remaining retaliation mm-hmm. charge that wasn't fully resolved in the summary judgment. But going in there, Kutztown is already guilty on all these other counts. Mm-hmm. So there is a jury. Uh, that will be there, and they will be told that uh, Kutztown was found guilty on all these other counts, and they're only here to resolve this one retaliation. And that is like whether or not they retaliated against you. Whether or not they specifically retaliated against me. Yes. And, and so just for just so that we're kind of understandful, what does that mean? And like, what does that mean exactly? So if they find going there, what are we trying to figure out? Are we trying to figure out if they're just kind of saying, yes, indeed, they retaliated and their jury is now going to decide upon that? Are there other consequences the university will face as a result if that you're, if, you, if you win that as well? Well, I mean, there is a damage claim attached to it. So, yes. you know, there are a lot of things that can happen, but... Um, but, but yeah, I mean, so, I mean, who doesn't want to try a case you've already won? You know? <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> I don't know. A litigator's dream, you know? Um, so, so anyway, although it's also a nightmare for other reasons, I mean, we've already come this far. We've got, you know, all, all this stuff already resolved. So. We'll we'll see what happens, but but that's that's the next thing in terms of litigation calendar. And you know, I always tell people, especially smart people like these clients, you know, that I believe that people who bring a lawsuit, especially an employment case, mm-hmm. that they should be required to read Bleak House, like Charles Dickens, you know, because mm-hmm. you know, interesting, uh, yeah, because you know that that case is all about the legal system and how it kind of chews people up and spits them out and people, you know, their lives revolve around this lawsuit because it's so important and it's so life sucking, you know, it takes so much time and then you have all sorts of delays and at the end of the day, you know, you could end up with nothing, but you know, the wheels of justice grind very slowly and this has been no exception. I mean, the federal courts have a lot to do and, you know, because of COVID they were really behind. Yeah. Because federal judges have to decide criminal cases. And the jury system was totally shut down for a long time. So motions weren't getting resolved in civil cases because, you know, all the criminal stuff had to go. It always has to go first. But it really had to go first now because there hadn't been any trials in, you know, a long time. You couldn't bring a jury mm-hmm. into a courtroom, you know, during the early part of, of COVID. So. So the system was slower than it probably ordinarily would have been because we were dealing with, with stuff like that. Um, so, you know, that's that's part of why we're still here because it's just, it is, it's just been hard to get things to yeah. move as fast as maybe they should have or we wanted them to. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, because so really, true. like once we got the TRO in Steve's case, we did the discovery, we got it over with, we filed our motion, you know, I mean, and then we waited. So, mm-hmm. you know. Uh-huh. Well, you know, so let me let me first zoom out and then I want to zoom back in again because I'm 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 want to kind of bring this back to you, Steve, in a minute. Like, but I mean, yeah. for either one of you to kind of. I'm thinking, so we've been focused a lot on Steve's case, obviously, right? Um, and the kind of, and what was happening here and what the university did. But if we zoom out just a little bit, I mean, we could talk in more broader terms about the implications that this case may have when we're thinking about ADA or kind of, um, you know, uh, discrimination uh, against folks with disabilities more broadly. I mean, I think about, the, I mean, my sister is, um, you know, she's got a mental disability, right? I mean, she's um, as a result of uh, medical malpractice. And when she got kind of encephalitis after having the measles, mumps, rubella shot when we were young, we happen to be one of these families that has a one in a million, you know, we are the one in the, the one in the million that happens has a bad reaction to this stuff and then she was administered bad stuff she got brain damage as a result of that and it goes on and so you know my experience seeing things uh the the treatment of folks with disability has been pretty firsthand and it, it can be you know pretty brutal cases like this um seem to me that they have implications that go far beyond um what the poshie system does um or the the you know um and like steve's personal kind of quality of life although that's absolutely critical does this have broader implications for how we think about the ada and how that um people with disabilities will be or will not be protected going forward yes i I think it does and you know because as i said the whole this whole issue of remote accommodations has been hotly contested before COVID for years. The EOC has issued issued uh, regulations in, or guidance in 2002 said, you can't just say no. You have to look at each case individually. You have to look at the job, look at the specific things a person can't do. Can they do that job remotely? Now, there are lots of jobs that you can't do remotely, mm-hmm. you know? I mean, you know, it, that's just a fact of life. Right. But, um, but there are a lot of jobs that you can do remotely. And, you know, the issue that came up in a lot of the early cases as well, you have to be one of the essential functions of a job is showing up, you know, um, and that might be for some kinds of things, but, you know, it's not necessarily true for everybody, especially in this highly technological age that we work in. And so, and this is a specific kind of job where clearly there, the options are so enormous for, you know, accommodating people with disabilities and bringing them into the fold, you know, so I've always said this isn't just about COVID. Mm-hmm. It's about that. It's about sort of bringing to fruition the things that the courts have said. Like, you know, back in, I think it was 19, I can't remember what it was, 1980 or 79 or something, the Supreme Court decided a case called Davis versus Southeastern Community College. And it was a, a case involving a student who was deaf, and she was a nursing student. And she couldn't hear things that were going on in the OR or wherever it was they were doing the training. And so she wanted to have a separate kind of clinical program for her. So she wouldn't have to, to do that. And the court said, well, no, I mean, again, this is not an employee. So we're mm-hmm. doing fundamental alteration. Right. That, that will fundamentally alter the nature of the educational program. But the court said the time might come when such accommodations, you know, based on the advances in technology that we all know are coming, so such accommodations might be reasonable. And there are a number of other cases that said similar things, like, well, this guy loses, or this person loses, but 
someday, you know, maybe they won't lose. Maybe we'll have better stuff, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, we have better stuff now. Mm-hmm. So for, so that's why I think this case is so, it is important. You know, people are, oh. people are watching us, you know? Yeah. And, and can I add, if, if you have enough time? No, please. I'm uh, there, there's another dimension uh, that I, I, Lori and I have talked about and I think is important to mention here. The ruling in my case was, of course, that there were no penalties and there are no emotional distress damages available. That really comes out of a a April 2022 ruling by the Supreme Court, uh, Cummings versus Premier Rehab Keller, I guess is is the Mm -hmm. full name, where they decided that uh, claims, disability claims, could not receive any emotional distress damages. Uh, there's controversy about that decision. I would say. Um, they, they apparently, they, by some accounts, they took contract law too literally and ignored the fact that in some past practice, uh, contract law did allow for emotional distress damages, but there were gaps in the way the uh, law was written. And the Supreme Court noted those gaps, but they issued this ruling, no damages. Well, one of the consequences of that is it's going to make it much more difficult for people with disabilities to find representation in the case of uh, institutions or businesses discriminating against them. And uh, so one of the other implications besides, uh, as Lori was talking about, the access that I think is important to take out of this is that the Cummings decision has to be challenged. And um, for us, we're taking a step towards this. And there are other groups doing this as well. But we have a meeting set up in May, uh, no, excuse me, in March, the trial's in May. But we have a meeting set up in March with some aides from John Fetterman's office, where we're gonna talk about this problem and i'm considering reaching out to madeline dean and uh, the congresswoman dean and perhaps uh, senator casey as well um, dean represents my home area as well as kutztown university yep. so um, i think it's going to be important to reach out to the uh, legislators and fix these gaps that the supreme court rulings are capitalizing on to remove damages, uh, remove that possibility. And, 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 and not just because people might get damages, the reality is that there are certain types of discrimination where there are no other financial issues. I mean, there's mine happens to have salary and benefits. Right. There are other cases where discrimination is really just, you're prevented from doing something or having access to something. There's no financial loss. And it was always the case that the emotional distress charge plus potentially punitive were to punish people who are violating the law. Right. And that's now gutted with the Cummings decision. I I, want to just point out that this, our case was brought under the Rehabilitation Act, not under the ADA. Mm -hmm. Cummings applies to Title VI statutes. So it would be the the Title VI statute was like the grandfather of statute for public fund recipients. Um, and then, then we ended up with Title IX, which, you know, for gender, we have, you know, 
the Section 504. They're all sort of related. Now, the difference between Section 504 and some of those other statutes is that um, it, it, well, all of the statutes, they, they applied no matter who the federal fund recipient was. Mm -hmm. So it could be a hospital, it could be, you know, a public school district, it could be a university, it could be anybody that, you know, receives federal financial assistance. But, you know, when Section 504 was passed, it was so clear that one of the, you know, the basic principles was that it had to do with employment. So clear that Congress had to, the next year, you know, amend the statute to make it clear that it applied to other things, too, not just employment. Yeah, it applies to transportation, it applies to all these other things. Um, so Cummings was not an employment case. It was a public accommodations case. Mm, and um, so the court in Cummings, like, you know, issued this broad brush decision that affected employment claims. Under, well, it didn't actually say that. It didn't use the word employment, didn't use the word job. It's unclear whether they even knew that their language would be interpreted that way. And we, we made, I think, a really sophisticated and compelling argument that it actually didn't reach employment claims. Now, the judge, you know, I understand we put him sort of out on a limb a little bit, you know, but if the case were ever to be appealed, I mean, that issue would be going up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think that we just have a really strong argument that isn't actually what it was supposed to do. But the problem is, you know, and the reason that we brought our case under Section 504 is because the ADA originally, you know, was supposed to protect state employees, mm -hmm. but the Supreme Court gutted that too with regard to state employees. So you can't get damages uh, against them. All you can get is injunctive relief and um, attorney's fees, basically. Um, you might be able to get back pay. I'm not positive about that. But anyway, um, you know, so when we brought the case under Section 504, it was before coming to the society. So that was a real sort of, you know, blow, uh, you know, it kind of changed the whole landscape. But, um, but it is hard to get people to take these cases. You know, people like me are always going to take them if it's, if it's a good case. I mean, because, you know, one of the things you get if you win a civil rights case is you get attorney's fees from the employer yeah. or whoever, the, you know, the defendant is. <clears throat> but, um, you know, but let's say there have a lot of cases that aren't as good as this one. And, and these cases are expensive. They're time consuming. You know, here we are two and a half years later. I'm still spending a lot of my time on Kutztown yeah. cases. You know, I can't do a whole lot of other stuff. And, you know, so it's well, very difficult to get people. And, and then the Supreme Court, you know, like 1990 something, I can't remember exactly when, but they said, oh, you only get attorney's fees if you actually win. You don't get them if you settle, um, unless you have enough power in the, in the relationship, which we do, I think, if, in that situation. Like, so they'll pay you anyway. But um, so it, it's been really frustrating during my career to watch, you know, Congress pass these laws and then the Supreme Court stuff and says, oh, no, you know, you, you can't have that. And, and it's all it's fallen really heavily on disability. You know, so it's mm -hmm. very, you know, it's very, and the reason that we have, like, attorney's fees provision in civil rights statutes is because these laws aren't self-executing. Someone has exactly. to bring the case, you know, so they call them the private attorney generals, you know, they bring these cases, 
and enforce the law. We can't enforce the law if you don't have any consequences. Well, so, and that's what I worry about with it. I mean, to be honest with you, is that that's the part about about the damages that is most concerning to me about what's what's gone on here, in part because is like what really are the repercussions that have been faced by Kutztown uh, President Hawkinson, Jesus Pena, or all these people that put in these policies, if they cannot be, if they're protected because they're state employees, so therefore they can't be sued directly, right, under these provisions, if they're, right. the university and the individuals are not going to face kind of financial, a financial cost to this, they can just dismiss this as a cost of doing business and have their personal kind of belligerence kind of being, you know, thrown out for the world to see. I mean, it, it, and I hate to say that because you would like to think, I mean, I mean, there was a time when I thought that, okay, in the end, people are going to do the right thing. Well, this is a perfect case where they don't. And it seems like if they're not going to understand reason, they're not going to talk about the force of law, then the only thing really left is a one, a personal, like, you know, um, a, a repercussion or consequence, like losing your job, <laughs> like president of the university, right? Or, right, financial, like, like financial loss, where they're going to face yeah. consequences and have to kind of deal with that. And if, unless we, we have that, I mean... Okay, great. We got the law settled, right? And Steve, thank God you've got your job, right? And thank God you didn't kind of end up being kind of forced in a situation where you were going to kind of like put your life at life at risk. So that's good. But as we've seen just in chat tonight, as you've said, you've talked to other folks in the Pashti Institution and at Kutztown, uh -huh. they could just dismiss this as cost of doing business unless there's some kind of serious consequence. Well, I mean, don't get me wrong. If you lose a civil rights case, there's going to be a serious consequence because you have to pay the lawyers and that's not insignificant. On the other hand, it's also not, it's also not a remedy for the plaintiff, you know, like I'm not in this, you know, for any reason other than, you know, to get a, to, to get relief for the plaintiff. And, you know, I'm a law reform person, so, you know, that's important to me, but, yeah. um, but, you know, but yeah, but we made really compelling arguments on, both of those fronts on, on Cummings and on the, you know, because the judge did dismiss all of our damage claims and except for the retaliation one, which is still, which still is that's what's pending for so, Yeah. So that's all to be decided later on. Um, but, but that's kind of where we are because I mean, I, I agree. I mean, I just think it's, it's really short sighted and just totally, it just shoots the law in the foot. Yeah. You know, and the reason, like, Congress, you know, amended all these laws in 19, 1990, you know, um, you know, because they realized that you had to have damages in order to um, be able to yep. enforce these provisions. But yep. under Section 504, the damages were already there because, yeah. you know, it's a totally separate type of statute. But, yeah, so those issues are going to get litigated they're going to get resolved if not in this case in another case but um but those and and we're not the only ones in the planet who are working on these issues yeah. either um right yeah. but yeah so but, it, it's know. yeah but yeah it's frustrating it really yeah. frustrating yeah. especially when the law changes like that in the middle of a case yeah yeah oh my god well I know. yeah I, I gotta admit i'm i'm quite angry about this because i i would like to think like you mentioned kevin that after being after it was pointed out that the policies violated the law, and after having a ruling that highlights this, you would like to think that our so-called leaders say, oh, let's correct this, let's, let's make this right. Let's 
change what we do. And we haven't heard a single word from Hawkinson and Pena about how they're going to revise their actions towards ADA accommodations. Not a single word about it. And well, I did I see at the end of every words. email that they write, it does say, we don't discriminate. <laughs> yeah, that's what they say. But anyway, they, you know, sorry. They that's... need to follow that policy. Yeah. But I don't hear from our council of trustees either, right? And they are supposed to be overseeing, to some extent, the policies and actions of the president, at least advising in some cases and overseeing, I guess, in others. We have lawyers on the council of trustees. You would think... Among this group, somebody would be pointing out, we have to change our behaviors. Okay, they're not going to get damages. You know, fine. But still, change the policies. Change the actions of the university. Show some remorse for mistakes made and corrective actions. I don't see any of that at this point. Um, so I get quite angry about this. Yeah, well, you know um, what? Sorry. And it, it, it's beyond uh, it's beyond my case. Um, you know, I, I, when this whole thing started, I said this was, yes, I'm personally involved, but it's not just about me. And that's exactly where I'm sitting now. Okay, you know, we'll get some resolution, you know, but no damages. Okay, but then let's make sure this doesn't happen for others. How are we doing that? I don't see it yet. Yeah, and it would seem, I don't know, I mean, you know, I, as a university who is as concerned about its public relations as possible, I mean, one, one of the things you have in PR that, you know, you learn, I mean, my I'm friends, you know, my department who teach in PR, right, you know, things like this will tell you is that, you know, if you, if you do wrong, <laughs> right, the best thing that you can do is apologize and move forward and say, we're going to make it right. Right. I mean, uh -huh. and very publicly. Right. Because you want people to know that you're not the kind of institution that's hypocritical about saying hey, we're a caring community. But if you've got a disability, we're going to push yeah. you in the rug. You know, if you you know happen to be kind of like facing racial discrimination or kind of sexual harassment, oh, we're not going to talk about that because we're going to do the image. You, you want to be you want to be kind of out in front about it, it would seem to me. But I guess I guess. Think. Yeah, you would think. And so, Steve, I guess I guess as a way of kind of kind of moving this, I mean, you know, I, I think it's fair to say that your life has been significantly changed by this, right? I mean, you're involved in advocacy oh, yeah. organizations nationwide and all this stuff. Now, I'm curious, kind of a little bit, kind of more locally. I mean, because I could imagine it, you know, coming back to work, right, um, has got to feel kind of, I don't know, mixed at least, right? You know, I'm coming back in the sense that at the university, but at the same time, you're there doing a job that you love, right? That, you know, and, and I've said this when you were on the show before, I've said this a thousand times to anybody who will listen to me, is like, you, for me, always stood as one of the kind of models of the person who was willing to do the work, willing to do the work at the university, Right. Even when others don't. And, they, you know, I, I, I take people back all the time for when you when you kind of volunteered. OK, I know something about assessment, so I'm going to take that up. I remember sitting with you in a room like and me being the belligerent guy in composition being like, nope, not going to do it. Well, nope. you <laughs> well, you were in one ear. Somebody else was in the other ear. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. But I mean, but I mean, you didn't do that because, you know, OK, that you just want it. You were doing it so that, you know, whatever, you could rise up the totem pole, so to speak. You know, no, you no, were doing it because. Because, okay, you wanted to give. You say, this has to be done. I've got the skill set that's going to do it, so I'm going to step up and do it. And, you know, so for me, I, you know, I grew up in Irish Catholic working class family that's got, knows how to hold a grudge to the grave, right? Um, yep. 
I mean, what's the experience been like coming back, right? I mean, and, you know, what's been the response that you've got from, you know, say colleagues or the community, um, kind of a response to your case? I mean, has there been that kind of show of support? Has there been kind of people stepping up and saying, we're with you, Steve? Well, look, I'll, I'll step back to say that when I was going through the rehab, I was excited to have the chance to come back to work feeling healthier because I had struggled with the health for so long. The fight with the university has completely drained me of that enthusiasm. Yeah. Now, did I get support? Uh, yes, from a lot of individuals, obviously yourself and others. Um, not very strongly from the union at first. It has gotten better. But you know, bluntly, I don't think they've gone far enough mm-hmm. in supporting the fight. I've heard uh, that the lawsuit was a topic of conversation during negotiations of our contract. But whenever I ask Ken Mash, well, what exactly is the outcome of these conversations? What is this lawsuit going to do in terms of our contract? I don't get an answer. Mm -hmm. So I sit there and say, is this having any impact? Has the union pushed hard enough? Have they, you know, been militant enough as, as as I think they needed to be? Um, No, I, I think the, the individual support from a lot of people has been there. A lot of people have spoke up and contributed to this. I think the union, as I said, has gotten better but I don't think it's gone far enough. Yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I sometimes tell myself and, and, and think about it in this way, disability is yes, that's the class that I am in, but it's a basic discrimination issue. It is an issue of, well, how is the university going to respond to other populations that are exactly, Differences in sex, differences in race. Uh, you know, we, we currently see an issue on our campus and in the PASHU system being raised about the treatment of people of color. I got this right here. This is Senator Art Haywood's um, kind of report that came out but just about kind of racial discrimination across PASHU campuses. And now there's going to be this listening tour. There's an announcement just came out. We want to hear this and kind of getting on board. Seems to me is that this is, again, this is another facet in the kind of, you know, the kind of case that you brought forward. Because, look, there has been a long history of racial discrimination on our campus that I've heard it from students. We know this has had faculty. There's been faculty that have been driven out um, of, you know, of the university. These things, you know, there. So this case, you know, in my mind is like, I'm thinking, okay, yes, your class here, disability, um, but we've seen ongoing harassment. I know faculty members, women faculty members who have been harassed right. by administrators and things like this, and it's brushed under the rug. Other administrators were decide to encourage to leave the university rather than have exposed what, what had gone on um, and then given a, a glowing recommendation so they can go on and kind of uh, commit the same kind of things at other Pashi institutions even for that matter. Yes. So this is, you know, these are the kind of things where it seems to me that everybody's got to be, you know, here. And I, mean, I, th- I would agree with you. I mean, when I look at that, you know, from the union perspective, I mean, you know very well, I was involved with our union for quite some time. Matter of right. fact, the what happened around the COVID accommodations was really something that kind of broke my heart in many ways um, because there were groups of people who were attempting to put together 
a reasonable sets of accommodation coming further from the union. And then we're kind of dismissed out of hand that we're basically told, no, no, we're not going to do this. We're going to, we don't want to kind of uh, rock the boats. And our local, you know, union leadership was not there um, to fight the fight um, for faculty members. So, I mean, I think that this can be, I mean, it's, it's, it's another moment of reckoning in my mind. And I don't mean to go on here and diatribe about this, but it seems to me that it's a really important moment in this case um, I, 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 I want to highlight it in every possible way for exactly the reasons that you just said. You know, I will say I have an, a grievance against uh, my dean right now for something I believe, you know, I'll be careful how I say this, but I believe is driven by retaliation. Mm-hmm. Um, and the union is supporting me through that. Yep, it's better. Um, yeah. And I, And I've also been in touch now and have been, I guess officially made a member of a subcommittee for the social justice uh, at the state level. So I think I'm going to be able to have a larger voice in some of these issues, whether it's enough to generate some momentum, uh, you know, I'm going to use the metaphor coming up, I guess the jury's still out from, in my mind. <laughs> well, I mean, I think that, something that is really important about the case is the union can use this to help advocate. 100%. I mean, the union, your union contract has an accommodation provision in it, you know? So, I mean, they don't, you know, like the union is a totally separate issue. Like we're not treading on, on their turf and their, you know, we're, we live in different planets in a way, but you know, I always feel like, Fundamentally, we, we've got the same the same interest at heart. But, you know, I'm just really hoping that what we've been able to do on the litigation side will help them. Because the last thing that yes. most people need is a lawsuit. You know, like I said, it's very, this litigation is not for the faint of heart at all. I yeah. mean, it's just really difficult to, to, do, to do this. And, you know, um, so it would be great if this kind of result could, you know, sort of be used as, you know, okay, this is, this has been this case, we have this case now, I mean, and we have our own accommodation provision. So let's try to, you know, be proactive so that we can keep most people out of court, you know, because that's really, that's really the goal. So for me, I'm really hoping that there's a translation between what we are doing and what people can basically do for themselves or that the union can, can help them do. Well, you know, I, I hope so too. Implementing but, his know, own contract, yeah. But so. we're going to have to see how this lawsuit had any specific impact on this new contract. We don't have enough details about it right now, yeah. uh, but that's yeah. my hope is that it had something concrete to enhance our ability to protect other individuals in yeah. the future. And we're hoping that it will also you know, help other people. <laughs> because one of the things that I was so amazed about when we first started this case was that there weren't any more, you know, like around the country. There there was one that sort of started before we got started. And I'm not even sure what happened to that. Um, but there's another one I know of in, in Georgia. And there are a few now sprinkled around. But, there, yep. you know, just there aren't a whole lot of them. You know, I think part of it is because it's so difficult and people, you know, we're really concerned about like a lot of that case law that had been developed before COVID, like, Oh, the law is so bad on remote accommodations. And well, they say it's an essential function for you to be at work, like in the, in the classroom, the physical classroom. I mean, I think a lot of people 
out there, uh, I mean, are not, I, I don't want to, I don't know. I guess I should, say, should think about this differently in terms of how I say it. But yeah, you know, <laughs> I know what you're you saying. have to you have to like have be to willing to sort of put your money where your mouth is, right? Exactly. That's how I feel, and it's just um, it's just hard. Yeah. Not everybody can do that or wants to do it, and it's a big risk, you know, because you are devoting a huge amount of your life right. to a case like yeah. this, and you may or may not get paid at the end of the day. Yeah. Well, and I just hope that this is this is like the opportunity. You know, we had a recent case in I mean, there's ongoing cases here in my own school district, right? Uh, discrimination case, ongoing racial discrimination cases. The Education Law Center has been working with us on this and all this. But it's like, you know, I always think about these. These are really kind of the opportunities for spine building, right? Um, because I think sometimes people are afraid to fight. Put the the, the difficulty stuff. I hear you 100%. We can put that in this one box. That's not going away. But there's also the will, right? The belief that you can win. And, you know, I mean, that's also the lessons that we talk about a lot in this program about, you know, this is the history of social movements. I mean, you can't win if you don't fight. I mean, that's just a square one. You're not going to win every single time. Right. Um, but you can't win if you don't fight, especially when you got a case like this, which was a slam dunk <laughs> right? for oh, it should have been like, I mean, like you said, you should have been bringing this forward. And they should have been they should have ran away with the tails between their legs and saying, I can't believe we didn't uh, that we even tried to do this. It was so morally reprehensible. <laughs> you know, I can't show my pub, my face in public anymore. Um, but no. So, well, I mean, I guess I might quibble a little bit with, with the slam dunk because. In spite of everything that we said about how great we think our case is and how much we believe in it, because I think Steve and I are both on the same page about that, and we have been on the same page from the outset, and we're both really committed to it, you know, and believe in 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 our ability to you know see it through. But litigation is never a slam dunk. Fair point. You know, yeah. I mean, it's <laughs> really hard work, and anything can happen. And at the end of the day, it doesn't matter if we do everything right and we've, you know, I mean, we don't get to decide. So, you know, that's sort of where the whole risk analysis comes in for, you know, people who, you know, may just have a different perspective or have other things to do, or, you know, just don't really understand like how the law really has, has been transitioning for the, you know, last 30 or 40 years to where we are right now. And I, I, I see things like, like some of the listservs I'm on, you know, for employment lawyers. Oh, well, you know, you can't get a remote accommodation because of this case that was decided 20 years ago. Like, well, that case actually has really good language about now, mm-hmm. you know? Um, but I think a lot of people, if they don't really specialize in this area and like spend all their time on it, they might not know that, you know? Well, let me, let me, I've taken you, I've taken so much of your time tonight and I appreciate you really, uh, of, uh, of talking this through. Cause this is for me, this is just such has been in such an important case that obviously I feel viscerally in many ways. Um, it, it literally, like I said, just kind of broke my heart to see what happened, especially after a year before, um, this happened to see this before COVID we had an adjunct faculty member in a different department, um, who was told they had to have like emergency surgery in order to kind of, or they were going to die. And the university fought any kind of accommodation. We had faculty members stepping up and, you know, our, our union president at the time, Amanda Morris basically said, look, we can use the faculty sick bank to make sure that this person has health insurance <laughs> so that they can stay work. And the university said, nope, we won't take it. And they fought that. And then 
as dis- that was disgusting and despicable at that point. And to see them, okay, yep, okay, I guess we learned our lesson from that one. Let's do it to Steve now. Let's do it to these other faculty members. It's just pretty kind of incredible. But the point, as both of you have said tonight, this is not just about you, Steve, right? That this is going to have mm-hmm. impacts far beyond what where this case goes. And we've got people in our chat tonight already saying, yep, this is happening to me here. So if yeah, we had to kind of close this out as a way of thinking about, okay, if you're a person who's listening to this out there, whether they're in the Pashi system or in their other workplaces that are facing these kind of um, cases, do you have some kind of suggestions of kind of where they can go, where they could go for contact, um, or anything about the other work that you're doing? I know, Steve, you're doing some great work with um, kind of uh, younger folks around the country too as well. What would you want to leave folks with here about kind of where to go and what to do and messages for where we go from here? You want to start, Laurie, or? Well, I actually hope they'll go to the union. You know, I mean, because I think we have something for the union to work with now. I mean, they're not starting from scratch. They're not having to pave the way. So, Mm -hmm. you know, like I said, I think that that would be a really good place to start. Now, I don't, I mean, the realities are that I understand how that process works. And the university gets to say what they're going to say. But you would just When you look around. I'm sorry. That's okay. I was going to say what you have to take into account the fact that not every university, since, since that's our primary setting here, uh, not every university has a union. Um, right. So you would hope unions about, step up right, first. I, um, right. I actually think about Kutztown or, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. But, 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 you the, know, but some of the people I'm talking to from other universities don't have that. Oh, I know. Um, I, I, have I reached out, for example, to the EEOC but there was such a long delay before you, from when you first contacted them to when I finally got in the interview to see whether they would take the case, that it was past the deadline because I was threatening to fire me. So I couldn't follow that path. Mm-hmm. Um, I approached a, as I mentioned earlier, a nonprofit, I guess nonprofit, but the disability rights organizations in states mm-hmm. um and and in the one from pennsylvania was quite helpful mm-hmm. they obviously didn't manage to resolve the case but they were quite helpful wrote a strong letter on my behalf um i'm finding working with other faculty in other states that the analogous organization in different states is not always as strong as pennsylvania seemed to be but it's a way to start potentially without having lawyer fees. But uh, the reality is, I think, with these kinds of cases, you may ultimately come to a lawyer. And, um, and, and you know, fortunately for me, when I was looking, Lori had expertise, obviously, in employment, but also disability issues. So I found that to be a particularly compelling uh, background for mine. Um, so I, if I'm going to recommend somebody, I'd say you have to find lawyers that have those as specialties. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, and I, you know, lawyers can speak to whether somebody like in this firm like she has versus larger firms, what might be more helpful. It, there's a series of steps that you have to look at. Yeah. And well, on that score, not, we, would you... Do you regret like me? Do you regret going forward with this case? Oh heck no! Yeah, I mean, heck no. Um, I mean, Lord's I like, told, <laughs> no, no, no. I mean, I, absolutely not. I, I praise Lori to everybody yes. who will listen. Um, but broader than that, 
Uh, you know, when I came out, one of the things the, the doctor said is that during this re- recovery phase, you know, first year or more, I had to do everything I could to minimize stress. Mm-hmm. And within six months, I'm fighting my employer. <laughs> you know, do, do I regret that? Hell no. Yeah. What they did was wrong. And as you said, somebody had to stand up to them. And I had, was fortunate to be in a position where I could, you know, uh, tenured and closer to retirement age. I wasn't worried about promotions in 10 years. Uh, but that shouldn't really stop anybody. But still, it was a, a privilege I had. And then I also have the uh, attitude, I guess, yeah. <laughs> that I was willing to uh, fight this. And, and um, I, I, you mentioned spine. I, yeah, there's a certain amount of you have to recognize you may not win, as Laurie mentioned, but you have to recognize you have to go into the fight when somebody's doing something wrong. Well, you know, and and it would be clear when I, the reason I asked the question too about, you know, do you regret it is because I know that when you're at the beginning of the process, sometimes yeah. it's hard to see this moment, yes. right? To see this moment of saying, if I stand up and I do what's right and I fight and I know that I'm right on this one with all the risks that are involved, right? Uh-huh. That, that you know, feeling is important, like looking yeah. back on it. Yeah, and, but you, you have to take that first step, and I was willing to do that. Yeah. Um, and I felt, like I said earlier, I felt really confident about the case, knowing that it wasn't going to be my decision and things could go wrong. But if, if you re- honestly believe that what is being done is wrong, you have to do something. Um, you know, we have way too many cases where people are not stepping forward. And if we want to make it better, not just for ourselves, but for people who are going to follow us, somebody has to step up. And, and frankly, it has to be more than one person. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'm proud to say that there are multiple people from our university who have sued. And um, I'm hopeful for their outcomes because one is still pending. But uh, we need that. I, I'm glad to see that another lawsuit was filed at another Apache school. I'm hopeful that people from the other schools, if you're still listening, you know, take the step because I've talked to quite a number of this. Um, yeah, it's going to take some time. Yeah. But you, you got to do it. And, and I don't regret it. Have I gotten disappointed and frustrated and angry along the way? Sure. You know, the emotions have gone up and down, but it's never gotten to a point where I've regretted uh, what I've done. Yeah. In fact, I, you know, you may know, I've publicly shown up to talk to the president about this. Yep. Um, and um, I don't get him to talk about it. But, <laughs> but you know, I'm to, <laughs> but I'm going to be there to highlight what's going on. Yeah. And, uh, so, um, and you know, we'll see what some of the planned actions coming up will do. Got to, got to step up. I hope, hopefully people will. Well, fantastic. Well, listen, well, I, I'll oh, go ahead, Lori. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. They don't have to invent the wheel. I mean, we've invented yes. it. Yeah. <laughs> this know, is a big deal now that there's a, big, a track laid down. Right. Exactly. So it, it's, you know, it's always hard to be first. 
mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, and that's a, that's exactly it. You gotta you know you gotta start that path, and then after that path gets started, more people walk that path, then it becomes um, something bigger. Uh, which is also one of the reasons that uh, in the uh, show notes that you're gonna find a link to uh, Lori's legal firm, <laughs> so that uh, you know, um, and you know, uh, we'll put in more information. Um, about all this social studies rock says, uh, basically, thank you so much for starting the process. Um, that's pretty awesome. And, uh, I want to thank both of you so much for, uh, one spending as much time as you did here with me tonight. I know it's uh, it's, it was a big ask, especially for this amount of time and for you to, you've been so generous with your time and helping explain this and, but even more so for willing to take on this fight. Um, and I think that, you know, I mean, I know Steve that, you know, couldn't have done it without you, Lori, you know, and <laughs> Lori, I'm glad no, that I, you're the person yeah. that Steve, you know, ended up with, because this is one hell of a kind of dynamic do I have to say. Yeah. yeah she well, might you know, credit, but I'm... <laughs> I always tell Steve, you know, I know you're frustrated, but I'm actually having a really good time. He's <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm in my lane right now. <laughs> yeah. I know, I know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, wonderful. Um, Wonderful. Well, listen, we're going to, you know, I'm going to keep on following this case and, you know, Steve, uh, always things come up, right. Um, things that, uh, things, um, you know, developments in the case or whatever like this, um, that it's not right on my radar. Let me know. I'd love to have you back on to talk about any aspect of this. Um, it'd be kind of cool to hear. I know that you're starting some webcasts or uh, web series. That's going to be with some young folks. I'd love to even down the road once that kind of gets rolling to have to talk a little bit more about that. That'd be really cool. I'm going to, I'm going to be setting up, uh, a place uh, to discuss this further and have resources. So some type of blog site where there'll be documentation of my case, discussions, other information uh, that can be easily accessible to people. Um, I, I haven't got there yet. I've got something else I'm trying to finish first. Uh, a couple things to finish first, frankly, but, uh, but I will be doing that. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, listen, uh, thank you both so much for take, for coming on the show tonight. I'm getting lots of kind of little messages here, kind of uh, comments in here about excellent discussion. Um, and thank to all of you um, for the work that you continue to do. Um, I know this is going to have an impact far beyond your case, Steve. Uh, and I know that, Lori, that, you know, being an expert in this and be willing to take on this fight and kind of like never look back and have fun with it is even better to hear <laughs> is uh, kind of what we want. Right. This is the kind of fight that uh, that we love to highlight and showcase here. So thank you for being on the show tonight and look forward to uh, the kind of next round, I guess, coming up. And Kevin, thank you for yes. the opportunity. I mean, been a supporter from the very beginning and given me a, a forum to talk about this early and continually now um this is cr- this is big this is big for me that you were willing to do that well god are you kidding me anytime i mean this is like uh it's like it's a small it's a small contribution that i can make to this fight um kind of in this whole thing so i just appreciate everything that y'all are doing so it's great well, I got my daughter coming down the stairs saying, hey, look, it's good bedtime coming up. <laughs> so I'm going to go see how she's doing. Uh, let you all off the hook for the evening. Thanks so much for your generous time and, and for the fight that you're waging. And we will hope to talk to you soon. All right, everybody. Uh, thank you for tuning in for this show tonight. Um, this has been one that I have been super looking forward to, as I said. Um, I appreciate the comments and the support. Um, make sure you share this out everywhere you can. We'll talk to you soon. See ya!
yes, I'm